Welcome to the Arizona Opera Podcast. Today, we're talking about Riders of the Purple Sage. I'm Kyle Homewood, Director of Community Engagement and Special Programs at Arizona Opera. It's my pleasure to bring you this episode of the Arizona Opera Podcast. Longtime supporters of Arizona Opera will recognize Riders of the Purple Sage as the company's first ever world premiere when it debuted back in 2017. The first run of this opera was met by sold-out audiences in both Phoenix and Tucson and also received great critical acclaim. It's partially due to this success that Arizona Opera has decided to bring Riders of the Purple Sage back to its stage just three years later. In the years since the premiere of Riders of the Purple Sage, Arizona Opera has embarked on performing much more newer works in the operatic repertoire. These modern works allow us to explore new music, and also fall in love with new stories being brought to life for the first time on the stage. Writers of the Purple Sage incorporates both of these elements wonderfully, with a beautiful, compelling score composed by Craig Bomler and set to a thrilling libretto written by Stephen Mark Cohn and adapted from the famous Zane Grey novel. Another great benefit to performing new work is that you get to talk to those that created it, I sat down with the two gentlemen I just mentioned to hear from them about the creation of the piece. I'm Craig Baumler, composer of Riders of the Purple Sage. My name is Stephen Mark Cohn. I wrote the libretto for Riders of the Purple Sage. I hope you enjoy hearing about their inspiration for this breathtaking opera, as well as the process to bring it to life on stage. So thank you, gentlemen, for taking time to speak with me about this opera that you've created Arizona Opera is so excited to be producing this for the second time around. The opera premiered originally in 2017 uh, and now is having more performances in in 2020. But as I understand it, the whole idea started coming together long before 2017. Uh, Craig, can you tell us a little bit about where this genesis of this project came from? Yes, it started in uh, late 2011 and 2012, somewhere around there. And my husband and I uh, went for a hike in Payson um, probably in July or August because it is usually uh, very hot here in Phoenix at that time. I was in Branson, Missouri with my show, The Three Redneck Tenors. Oh, boy. And I was looking for a project uh, to sort of occupy my off hours, which were numerous. So uh, I didn't know what that was going to be. But anyway, as we arrived in Payson for our hike, the heavens opened up and we had a massive rainstorm with lightning and everything. And we stopped at the light in downtown Payson and there was a sign for the Zane Gray Museum. And I had seen, I had passed this sign in this light many, many times, but there it was raining and we were looking for something to do. I said, let's go see that. I'm embarrassed to say I thought he was a visual artist. Uh, But we went, and it turns out he was a writer, and indeed the writer of 
the Western genre, the very first uh, writer of the Western genre, and indeed most of those were written in Payson. So to follow up on my museum visit, I came home that night, uh, went to Kindle, pulled up 28 titles, and Writers of the Purple Sage was the most compelling one that um, kind of caught my interest. So I started reading it and I actually stayed up and read the whole thing that night. Wow. Because it was uh, so compelling. And I, I thought, wow, if this, this is such an operatic story, if Verdi were alive, he'd write an opera on this. This is the very kind of story he, he uses. And then I went, perhaps that's my project. And so it was odd because I really had no connections to opera companies and I really had no production in mind. I just thought this will kind of be a fun project to write an opera again. Mm -hmm. So then what happens next? What's the first part of creating this opera from this title? Well, I called my best pal, Steve Cohn, who is a wonderful composer and also a man of words. And he understands musical forms as well as, as verbal forms. And I asked him if he would be interested in uh, working on a libretto with me for a production that was not going to happen for a giant work. So, Steve, what was your response to Craig approaching you about this title, about this project? My initial response was, no, <laughs> I don't think so. But that's, you know, Craig and I, we've collaborated before. We had written a couple of musicals already and uh, we, were all, we hang out a lot. I have a theory that um, co your collaborators are people you'd most like to be in the room with. Yeah. These are people you're going to be spending a lot of time with. Who do you want to hang with? That's really who it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, Craig was amazingly um, supportive. Uh, his, skill, his skills set is off the charts. He'll, he won't say it himself, but I will. He's one of the finest musicians I've ever known in my life. And um, he talked me into it. And I think the idea of us working together, and we knew it would be a long-term project, was just kind of fun. Yeah, let, let's hang. Let's kind of poke at this thing and see what happens. And uh, he encouraged me to take a stab at the first scene after he, thank you, came up with a workable outline, which really distilled the piece down into a, an overall shape that seemed pretty sensible. And that really helped a lot. So uh, took a stab at the first scene, he said, overwrite, please, overwrite. As I start to compose, I'll, I'll nibble away at it. So he claims he's not good with words. That is not true. He's very, very good. Not only is he articulate, but he's very good at knowing how to edit text. So my challenge was to take a story with not a lot of dialogue and, uh, and put it into a form that is only dialogue. So can you tell me a little bit more about how that process specifically works where you're taking this book that has existing text but you need to adapt that text into what can be sung on the opera stage how do you know what to keep what to get rid of and anything else that goes into it you know that's a good question and that is the ultimate challenge uh, not all of his dialogue sings it doesn't have to sing all of it but it does have to be shaped in a way that allows for open vowels on high notes, phrase lengths that have some musical sensibility, these sorts of things. So, And it cannot be prosaic at all. It has to be very colloquial. I mean, these are cowboys and frontier people. And and, uh, and librettos, by, by definition, are shortened lines, really condensed plays. And it has to be that otherwise, um, because it takes about three times longer to sing a phrase than to say it, sometimes five times longer in a 
in an adagio or an andante section. And so you have to be able to get to the verb and on the back end of it as quickly as possible. And that that was even a consideration in, in terms of the word formatting. I mean, everything was on the left side of the page in short phrases so that you didn't have large paragraphs to wade through. They're for, short phrases. Uh, those would be separated into sort of uh, song form, four-line chunks, things like that. But the uh, but again, in, in approaching his writing, um, the, the key was to know who is saying this and what is their intent, and then finding the key lines in his book that could be built upon. And so I would extract several key lines, and they might be in different places in the book. And you cobble things together, and then once you have those, you become a lyricist, and you fill in all around those to, to amplify what that character is trying to say at that moment. That makes perfect sense. So in hearing you both talk about this piece a little bit to this point, uh, I have heard you say that there were some changes that you made in the story, very small things, perhaps eliminating a character or adding a scene that wasn't directly in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about those instances? Those are actually not small changes. Not so small. <laughs> those, those, are, those are big ones. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the main characters in the book was a little girl named Faye. And um, I was told <clears throat> some time ago by a stage manager who I respect that um, she preferred not to have children or animals on stage. So here we have a book with a main character that's a little girl, and it's named Riders of the Purple Sage, meaning there are horses and cattle in abundance. So it was it was really sort of tried to how to deal with those uh, elements. And I found Faye actually extraneous as I begin to read the book and uh, and actually more of a liability than an asset to the piece. So I I simply removed her and nothing was um, nothing was lost from that. And there were several, uh, you know, sort of bad guys that I was able to consolidate into two rather nuanced bad guys. Um, to to be able to tell the story and again narrow it down, you didn't need all this extraneous uh, work. And the chorus, the men's chorus, was able to do the work of the uh, sort of bad tone of the of the uh, of the evil folk. That was that that was lar- Those are large changes when you do things like that. Steve made an adaptation uh, in the graveyard scene, which I he can tell you about. Well, Craig's absolutely right. We condensed the cast way down. So there really are six principles now. And uh, so it becomes a more of an intimate piece, actually. You've got this huge backdrop, but you really have the stories of this small number of people. And uh, not only did we uh, do that, but we also started to deal with the subject matter of the Mormon church, which uh, does not get a favorable review in Zane Gray's book. Uh, but we decided we're not going to shy away from this. This is his story. But we also decided not to wield a heavy hammer with this. We're not going to grind an axe. So we were mindful of not uh, being too vicious uh, toward the Mormon church. We changed words. We uh, softened little bits here and there, maintaining the bite of the story. We did not want to lose any of that. We were mindful of that. And then we also... Well, to that end, we created a scene that we created a couple of scenes that are not even in the book. Uh, one is a duet at the opening of Act Three with the Mormon bishop and the Mormon elder doing a duet together, in which they explain and reaffirm their 
love of the church, the importance of their mission, all of these things that drive them, because even though they're the villains, they believe in what they're doing. And we know that modern audiences are not going to buy an empty villain. No one's just mean because they dig being mean. I mean, they believe in what they're doing. So we created a duet, which I think is really effective. And then we also took a powerful scene in which um, the gunman Lassiter visits the grave of his sister Millie Earn, uh, which is really almost the crux of the whole piece because Lassiter arrives in Short Creek to see his sister's grave. That's why he comes. And when he gets there, so many things emanate from that arrival. In the book, the graveyard scene is not is scarcely a paragraph. He stared down at the grave, a figure of stone. That's it. Then they move on. And we thought, no, we're going to make an entire scene at the graveyard at night with this beautiful sky. And uh, we're going to reveal character and, and emotion. And it's going to be very, very powerful. And then it's going to climax like the end of Act One of Sweeney Todd, which we both know and love, which has an epiphany, which just rants and screams at you and which is great. Well, we're going to do that. So we did we did that and, and it ended up being very, very effective. So this was this was creating new material to push the story to a, a higher level. And to what Steve said, um, because when I wrote Writers, I already had 12 musicals under my belt and kind of had embraced that world for about 20 years going back and forth a little bit to more classical forms but really that was my love and that's where I was living and those were my collaborators but with writers we were able to do um you know we we set up a song um uh, Millie Earns Ballad which we actually state three times so it acts like a first statement reprise number one and reprise number two and uh, and I love those musical theater forms. I think they're concise, uh, and I think they help root an audience. The other thing we uh, uh, I borrowed um, a, a song, I should say, from my musical Chicago Way, based on the Lewis and Clark uh, journey, and I it had gone in the drawer. It decided not to be used for uh, that musical, but. It, it came out for writers because it had such a Western sound. And so that song went into writers and became an aria. And then um, there's a quintet uh, in writers where the, uh, the bad guys are, are one part of the quintet. The two uh, young lovers are part of the, uh, are two more parts of it. And then Jane and Lassiter, who are leading lady and, uh, and the gunman, are the other two parts of it. And I thought, well, great, Leonard Bernstein and, and Stephen Sondheim seem to do very well with the West Side Story Quintet. So we literally laid that out on the ground, looked at the form of it, and and tried to capture the, the spirit of that form in our quintet and writers. So I was informed by the musical theater all the way through. And I still am. I, I think I think musical theater gave us great American forms that we can respond to and are part of the tools now that that maybe were not the tools of the Italians or the French or the Germans. And we talked about that early on. We decided that we were going to straddle the worlds of opera and musical theater because um, we both know musical theater very well. He knows opera more than I do, but we did agree that we can cross this line here and there as long as the language has a, some sort of uniformity. There shouldn't not be a problem with this. And uh, it was pretty seamless. And, and I like tunes. And high notes, because that's what I've always liked in my opera. That's what I like in Verdi. That's what I like in Puccini. Uh, and I've always 
I've always liked those things. I thought well, we're going to put those in here, and and nobody does greater tunes than the musical theater, so I can respond to that which I already know well. Yes, and a great example of this you've already referenced is this tune uh, that you originally wrote with Sacagawea in mind, um, and now have adapted that for this opera, Venter's Aria. Correct. Yes. Uh, Seems and, to be the big favorite among the. Audiences. Yeah, people love that, and, so, and interestingly, it's the only number in the entire piece in which the music came first. And then the words were in Rogers and Hart manner, fit to the tune. Oh, very interesting. The rest interesting. of the opera, the words came first. Well, I want to listen to a little bit of that now, uh, just so our audience can get an idea of this combining elements of musical theater and opera very effectively in what ends up being a highlight of the overall piece. Would you like to describe how this particular tune and the, the musical elements wrapped into it describe venters in your mind well it's uh young it's impetuous uh he is um quick to anger quick to love quick to celebrate quick to be joyful quick to act and um and in the background again uh, as steve said earlier our characters are it's a very intimate story with characters against this massive landscape. And so the music must also depict the landscape. As it was part of the original musical of Sacagawea, um, the landscape depicted there was Montana, Oregon, Idaho, the mountains, the Cascades, the ocean. So those were, those were again, ample opportunities to magnify this landscape in music. Uh, but I think it was uh, uh, particularly an opportunity to give the audience what they wanted to hear a nice western sound lots of opportunities for french horn big lush orchestrations and um and to really kind of illuminate in this particular aria venture's enthusiasm for where he finds his life at this point in the opera Craig, you just mentioned, and Steve, I've heard you speak to this before as well. It's very interesting in this piece, the landscape is a big aspect of the storytelling. And the nice thing about opera is that we have visual representations on stage, as opposed to just descriptions of the landscape in a book. So can you tell us about, one, how the partnership with Ed Mel formed, Ed Mel, the the wonderfully celebrated painter of Western landscapes, came to design the scenery for this opera, but then what that does for the two of you as you create this piece, knowing that you have this great help in a 1,300-square-foot video wall with some of the best art depicting this type of scenery that there is out there. What is that like? Well, it was interesting. When I first, um, when Arizona Opera contacted me about writers, uh, we had very little of it done. But the um, uh, general director at the time, Scott Altman, said, how are you going to deal with the horses? Because obviously that's an expensive you know, the minute you have animals and, of course, children involved, it gets much more expensive. And I said, I really was just going to deal with them as kind of referenced offstage and then any music 
like Ride of the Valkyries, would would depict the the horses themselves, or if like Benjamin Britten's sea interludes, we we never are on the ocean, but we certainly you know may see it projected, and we certainly hear it in his four sea interludes. So I was going to do it that way, and he says, well, he goes, we have a video, we have video capabilities, and we would probably want to do it that way. So as I left that meeting, I my friend Kristen Atwell had just won, I believe, her second Emmy. And again, this was just friends working together. So it was Steve and I, and I thought, well, he doesn't know her, but he will like her very much. And I will, I'll call her on the phone and see if she wants to work on this. And uh, she said, I, I do want to work on this. I think my best position will be as a documentarian. I would like to make this documentary for Roger. So that's how that came through. And she goes, and I think I want you to um, meet Ed Mel. And I said, well, I certainly know of his work, but I, I have no way of getting to him. And she says, I do. And it was literally a phone call, a brief explanation of what we were doing with the explanation that there was no production imminent. It was just some guys getting together to do this. And, you know, I've come to this place in my life. If I don't ask, I won't get. And so I always ask. No is an acceptable answer, though not always an easy one. But I asked and Ed said, sure, why not? That sounds like fun. And that's how he got on board. That's wonderful. So, Steve, how does that affect your storytelling as the librettist, knowing that you have this in your back pocket? I've been asked if the libretto was influenced by the majestic landscape of northern Arizona. And I answer that imagination uh, plays a very large part here because this was written in my home office outside of Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> um, the, I was much more focused on character than landscape. I knew we had competent people in the pipeline, and that was their thing. And they certainly didn't want my opinion on any of that. So my focus was on character who's butting heads with who. Uh, the beauty of it was that everybody had an agenda and they were all very clear about what they wanted. So that that was, that was made my job pretty easy. But as far as the landscape, I just knew uh, that Craig was going to address that musically. And I'm not going to address that with words, except where it's appropriate. When, when Venters gets to Surprise Valley and says, will you look at this place? Rising right up to the sky. You know, so things like that, you know, that, that what a character would normally say are in there, but it's really the music and the visuals that address, you know, the visual component of this. So Craig, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your inclusion of leitmotifs in this opera and to give a, a very quick uh, explanation of leitmotifs for our audience members. It's essentially a musical idea that we associate with a specific character or a specific plot point or a place, or a, in Wagner, Wagner was really the guy who who uh, started exploiting the light motif. And he, um, you know, in the ring, the ring has a light motif. Uh, the sword has a light motif. Uh, the love between Siegfried and Brunhilde has a light motif. The love between Wotan and Fricka has a light motif. We should clarify that a light motif is a musical theme. Uh, all of our characters have their sound uh, to them. Bess's leitmotif is uh, wistful, uh, lost, uh, slightly ethereal. She lives on this land and always has. She is confused when we meet her by having just been shot. And, um, and she's also very young and girlish 
And so her leitmotif sounds like this. Lassiter's uh, is the gunman, and he is a bassoon. So when he makes his entrance, um, he, the leitmotif is a falling figure that, and dark and not necessarily comical, but certainly dry and cynical and maybe with a hint of, you know, the wry in his voice, the, the kind of a wry sound in his voice. And then, uh, as he begins to talk about his uh, sister Millie Earn, the motif transforms to something much more soft and beautiful and soaring and heartbreaking for him. So we and we spend a lot of time, as I said earlier, with these Millie Earn. Uh, reprises so his motif transforms but it so that that was that was one of my funner ones My favorite light motif is Elder Tall. He was maybe the he's the first one I did, um, but I in my head I had it that uh, Tall, who is a, a polygamist, uh, you know, has about ten wives. He's probably about fifty five to sixty. He's kind of corpulent. He's fallen off of a number of horses, so he limps. He's pompous. And so uh, Artal is not any of those things, uh, except the polygamist part. Artal is actually a very good-looking man. But again, uh, before casting, that's all I had. So I created a light motif that sounded off-kilter, arrogant, dark, and kind of aggressive. The leitmotif for Jane, she is noble, steadfast, deeply devout to uh, her faith, the Mormon faith. And so uh, her leitmotif is gentle, strong, all at the same time, and uh, has the ability to really soar as her passions become evident in her song. Oh, my God. 
Then there is um, the Mormon Church. This was really great to work with, and I'm very grateful that the um, the hymn, the famous Mormon hymn, it is really kind of their amazing grace or a mighty fortress is our God if you're Lutheran. This is the Mormon hymn that was written as they were coming across the West from Missouri to Salt Lake City uh, originally. And the name of the hymn is Come, Come Ye Saints. And it's I found it very beautiful and very moving. And I thought, wow, I can use this hymn to illuminate the noble part of the Mormon church as well as the corrupted part of the Mormon church. And that's as Steve had said earlier, the we didn't want to deal with the Mormons too heavy-handedly. They too had a reason for doing what they were doing. And so the ability to permutate this this theme into into mostly noble noble underpinnings can go to the dark place and does a couple of times as the Mormons begin to lead the scene or their philosophy begins to lead the scene. So uh, I was really pleased to be able to use that tune without having to get the rights to it. Yeah, that's always nice. I'd like to start. Let's listen to the original hymn. So this is the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing this hymn so you can get an idea of it in its original state. Now, this is, Craig, this is your adaptation of a, a, a more original version of this hymn. We have the, the men's chorus singing this hymn in the opera. You'll notice there's a, a little bit of sound of footsteps in this section from a platform that they're walking on top of on stage. I'm happy to say that for this second production, we've gotten rid of that platform, so we won't have this issue next time. But, Craig, this is your version of the hymn in the opera. Yes, and then following this version is Lassiter accusing the Mormon church of corruption. And if you listen to the French horns, you will hear the the tune in the minor key uh, corrupted rather frankly to uh, illuminate Lassiter's opinion of the church. Something that I've heard both of you talk about in relation to this piece is how it centers around topics 
that are still very relevant today, even though this is a story that was written or at least published in 1912, uh, and it takes place in the roughly 1870s, uh, it still has subject matter that is really occurring in, in today's world. Can you speak to some of that subject matter and how it pops up? Uh, you're absolutely right about that. The themes are very, very current. Um, guns, pro or con, uh, either, either side will find something that resonates with them. Uh, religious fundamentalism, abuse of power, these are things that are still very much alive today. Women, their rights, their place in society, at times their unwillful suppression. These are things that are dealt with in this as well. Uh, violence, all of these things. Uh, and they're, it's very, very contemporary. All these things are dealt with, and they're all dealt with through character. Uh, they're not dealt with through us telling you what we think and how you should feel. Uh, so everyone has an attitude regarding these things. They're all pushing against each other. And Craig's absolutely right. These are very, very current, and we recognize that early. And it made the writing all the more compelling for us. Well, there's certainly a lot for each of us as audience members to take away from this piece, uh, but also to enjoy in this piece. So I personally want to commend you both on creating a fantastic opera, something that Arizona Opera is proud to be producing. Craig Bomler, composer, Stephen Mark Cohn, librettist, I want to thank you both for joining me for this podcast, and we look forward to seeing you at the opera. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Arizona Opera's revival of Riders of the Purple Sage comes to Phoenix Symphony Hall February 28th, 29th, and March 1st, and to Tucson Music Hall March 7th and 8th. The production is presented as part of the Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Modern Masterworks series and is made possible in part through generous support from Billy Joe and Judd Herberger, Charles F. and Jennifer E. Sands, Dr. Rex and Arlen Brewster, Carol Frank Buck Foundation, Hugh and Marsha Ruddick, SRP, Anne Y. Snodgrass, J.W. Kiekeffer Foundation, Judy and Bill Goldberg, Margaret T. Morris Foundation, Barbara D. Malotsky, Bankers Trust, Rio Nuevo, Andrea and Harry Crane, and Arizona Bank and Trust. The original production was made possible by executive producers Billy Joe and Judd Herberger and co-producer Kristen Atwell Ford. For tickets and other information, visit azopera.org. I'm Kyle Homewood. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Arizona Opera Podcast.